Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Coven, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts, featuring therapists, coaches, and practitioners. We will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities, practices, and tools. If you are interested in trauma recovery coaching, as well as recommended books and healing resources, head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. And now, here is your host, Monique Coven. This episode is sponsored by Tyndale House Publishing. Change your brain every day. 366 Days to a Better Brain, Mind, and Life. Psychiatrist and clinical neuroscientist Dr. Daniel Amen draws on over 40 years of clinical practice overseeing the treatment of tens of thousands of patients to give you the most effective daily habits he has seen to help you improve your brain, master your mind, and boost your memory, and help you feel happier, healthier, and more connected to those you love. Pre-order is now available at Tyndale.com. Happy New Year and welcome back. On today's episode, I'm going to share a conversation that I had with Dr. Hillary McBride. And Hillary is a registered psychologist. She's a researcher, a podcaster, and an author. And she specializes in trauma and embodiment. And the first uh, thing that we're really going to be focusing on in this conversation comes really out of her most recent book, The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Wholeness, Healing, and Connection Through Embodied Living. And I love this conversation because there is such a a space of compassion as we're talking about this. And I think that it can be really helpful as you are healing from trauma I just appreciate this conversation so much. I appreciate Hillary's work, and I think you will too. So enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Hillary. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be with you. Well, I really appreciate you being here. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. And I thought maybe we could start with a really important part of healing from trauma is is that piece about how we become disembodied. And we hear a lot about embodiment. And I didn't even know when I was beginning my journey what that meant. I mean, I heard the term, but for me, it was all about making decisions from our mind and our head and living from, you know, kind of like that thinking part of the brain. And I could not understand what it meant by being in your body or 
I now know that that makes complete sense because we learn to go, what I say, upstairs, meaning <laughs> living from our mind and, you know, starting to go down and becoming embodied, embodied um, can be really, really challenging. So maybe we could start right there with embodiment. Sure. Well, maybe I'll start by defining the terms a little bit, because I think that the word embodiment gets used a lot colloquial, colloquially, but as an academic, as someone whose scholarship is focused on this area, often the way that I'm using it differs a little bit from how we're talking about it culturally. When we talk about embodiment culturally, we often mean that somebody is fleshing out their values in a sense, which is not wrong. Like that, that definitely is one way of thinking about the term. You know, somebody has a value of compassion and then they do compassion. You go, wow, that, you know, that caregivers really embodying their value. You know, they're really living out the thing that matters to them. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about embodiment, what I'm talking about is this field of scholarship that is really cross-disciplinary, um, emerging out of philosophy and existentialism and phenomenology and bridging into psychology and what it means to experience ourselves fully and how do we disconnect from ourselves as bodies and then how do we return to a more sensory attuned connected relationship with ourselves so the definition of embodiment that i find really useful and helpful is is kind of my hybrid of a few different scholars particularly merleau-ponty and eva peran christine caldwell this idea that we are we are bodies and embodiment is the experience of being a body, not just being a mind that has a body that you know carries it around, but that this experience of being a body is shaped by our social worlds. That in our Western context, in our white context, in you know, when I think about all of these different narratives around dominant culture, the the contextual narrative is that we are an individual and our body is proof that we are disconnected from each other. And yet actually our bodies don't necessarily even say that our bodies are enculturated our bodies are relational our bodies mm -hmm. hold ancestry and tell stories and are constantly telling what's happened in the past and are shaping what happens in the future <laughs> and even when we look i mean when we get into the the science of the neuroscience of this i find it fascinating in embodied cognition and bodily neuroscience processes we see that often the motor neurons responsible for action get activated before the sequences in our mind associated hmm. with choice are activated. It's almost like our bodies are making choices for us before our minds even know why at times. And that's confusing to us as people who really want to be minds. And so we make up a story that goes along with what our body is doing, but we are actually way more body as pe than people think. And our bodies are actually way more relational than we think. So embodiment is this field of an interdisciplinary kind of approach to personhood that looks at reclaiming the body as the central place where our humanness exists and looks at helping us be in a positive relationship with the qualities of our body, including sensation and longing and emotion and expression and movement and aging and time and all the things that go along with that. To be disembodied, in contrast, is this kind of 
know, separation within the self. It might be as simple as thinking we are more of a mind than we are a body, but it can go all the way to clinical lengths and what we might describe clinically as dissociation or kind of these depersonalization, derealization disorders. But the the inability to attune to our bodily selves, to experience ourselves as a body, and then to be in a harmonious relationship with our bodily selves. And my work, so much of it focuses on helping us both understand what embodiment is and what disembodiment is. But I think really beyond that, helping us return to embodied states. And I say return primarily because I don't think it's something we have to learn. I think it's something that's naturally wired into us as people and we just need to remember it. Mm -hmm. That's really uh, a beautiful and hopeful idea that we have to remember because Mm. it could feel so overwhelming when it's so, when it can feel like it's not natural, but you're saying we just need to remember it and that it is natural. Right. There's so much in what you said that uh, was just just incredible, and um, I, I I just loved it talking about just the way our bodies have been, you know, designed to protect us, and how some of the actions that we do happen before we even realize. I was just thinking about you know you're crossing a street and then you realize you don't realize, but your body realizes that, right. oh, there's some, a car coming and, right. you know, and then you're like, what just happened? But your body jumped out of the way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of that kind of thing. And I just think that what, that starting to see that and the magnificence of that is really like, I don't know, it, it kind of, it, it's because it's so, uh, we're so not used to that. When you do start to think about it, it it's very humbling, Um, so yeah, I, yeah. And, and, you know, when you talked also about that, that this is something that happens culturally and even, you know, when you were discussing connection, I think you said connection, but you were talking about how we naturally, uh, our bodies want to connect. Like this is, I think you said that unless I read it in your book, (laughs) but Uh (laughs) you know, that we, we have this, this wanting to connect and, and. And yet we just get these messages that that either, you know, our bodies are, are not, um, they need to be tamed or they're not good or they're dangerous. And, and yeah, we, we, we seem to learn that really, really young. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of scary to realize mm-hmm. just how young it starts. And I think many of us might have some familiarity with that around adolescence, like maybe when our sexuality is emerging in a more obvious way and we are told, you know, that's going to get you into trouble or we take more risks or we're more expressive in, in a certain way. And, And the people around us say, you know, don't, that's, that's not good for you. Don't do that. But, but actually when we look at what happens in terms of us starting to mistrust our body and the messages around that, it happens much, much younger than that. Mm -hmm. It happens even before the childhood stories that maybe we could reach for if we were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And, you know, we, we realized, wow, that's kind of strange that we were told to sit still all the time in school when actually our bodies at that age wanted to run and play and jump and dance and, you know, it is kind of strange that I had to ask permission to go to the bathroom and that sometimes I had to wait longer than I wanted Mm -hmm. to. 
and I couldn't honor my body's cues. But even further back into our story, when, when we experience fear or we experience sadness as an infant and we have a caregiver say to us, you're okay, you're okay, right? Dismissing and denying and invalidating the lived reality of our experience. And I understand as a parent, why parents do that. What we want to say is, oh, honey, you're safe. Your body is safe. Even though you're scared, I want you to know you're safe. You're not in danger. It's okay. But what we say instead is you, how you're feeling is not how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And that gives an infant, you know, really one of two choices. I either don't believe myself or I don't believe my caregiver. And when we are wired to our caregivers for our survival, we will choose connection and belonging with them over ourselves every time. So I think these experiences of I'm hungry, no, you're not right. I'm sad. No, you're not. Or even, and I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot lately when we have a felt sense in our bodies of how our caregivers are distressed, right? If you could imagine, I've got a little daughter, she's an infant. And you know, when, if I'm, you know, I was choking on something the other day, just the water went down the wrong tube sort of thing. And mm. she looked at me and she could, she was scared because she could see that I was making a noise that I don't normally make. There is something that we do as parents where we go, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And yeah. I think what happens because our bodies, again, are wired to be in relationship with each other. We sense if someone we love isn't okay. And when they invalidate that sense, again, it makes us ask, Mm, is it me that's wrong or is it them? And I think the consequences to, to answering that, no matter how we do are pretty profound. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, and, and I'm thinking about the kind of parenting that, that, that we had, um, mm. that we learned rather, not that we had sure, um, sure. when, I, when my kids were younger, um, was if they were, uh, I don't know, doing something you didn't want them to do you would and this was very popular time out sure. put them put them put them on the stairs and let them sit there and think about it yeah i i when i think about this now i mean i've apologized to my kids a million times mm. and i said i would never do this right. i mean it's just absolutely it makes no sense mm. you know because basically they're feeling something instead of allowing them to feel what they feel and comfort them um let them know that it's okay. You're you're punishing them and you're telling them to think about it. Their cognitive thinking is not even <laughs> online yet. Right, <laughs> They're too right, young. Right. Just like, yeah. So I mean, yeah, I can just so see that. Wow. But I think it's, you know, people might be listening to this and saying, well, okay, well, why you're talking about feeling in infants, this, you know, this <laughs> is a conversation about embodiment. And and perhaps the listeners of your show might not they might not think that because they might be a little bit more aware of where I'm going with this. But I think the average person might still be kind of confused. Like, what do feelings have to do with the body? And forget that feelings and affect is a bodily process. It is sensation wired with action potential, wired with, you know, resourcing and drive and impulse and like fast and slow twitch muscle fibers and sensory motor cortex activation and interoceptive sensing, like feeling is a bodily process. It's not just the name that we give to it. And I think in, until we understand how, how much feeling is in our body, we won't quite understand why it is so hard for us to be in our bodies. 
-hmm. And I think that that comes back to, for many of us, that we weren't allowed to feel and that feelings, the message around them was that they're dangerous. They need to go away. Uh, Mm -hmm. They need to be numbed, avoided, shamed. And like you said, they, they take us away from the people that we love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they need to be controlled. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. So I'm just thinking about that, that swallowing all of those feelings. And I'm glad you really brought the attention to so much younger, because I think, mm. I don't know if we would naturally think that it starts that young, but it <laughs> does. Yeah, yes, exactly. Mm. Like I remember my, it's first of all, it's fascinating to have been uh, to have been a psychologist and spent all of these years in graduate school learning all sorts of things about developmental psychology and then to become a parent after that and to go, <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> the textbooks were right. And like, wow, look what I'm seeing. But you know, my my daughter, I think it's it really hits home for me when I think about those really early days of her brand new and not able to in any way articulate verbally or with any kind of nuance how she's feeling and me noticing my reactions to that like if that's that was like day one you know her her crying hungry tired whatever it was diaper change you know the things that kids need when they're young and and me first realizing you know my compassion and then you know if there were moments where she wouldn't stop crying like, okay, now my panic and now my frustration, or now my, we know whatever it was that was coming up and realizing, oh, that's interesting that like day one, day five, day 10, three months in, a year in, I could already be having messages sent to her through my face, through my tone of voice. Mm. Like, this is too much for me. This needs to go away. And that's all before we remember any of it. Like that's all shaping how we feel about ourselves in this kind of intrapsychic, internalized, neurobiological way. So we, I think there's an argument here to think about embodiment as an attachment process and something that we can preserve when we know that our bodily experiences won't be too much for our caregivers. Mm. And when we know that our body, not just appearance, right? Because that's a thing that people often think I'm talking mm-hmm. about when I say, yes. you are your body. They're like, no, please don't. I don't want to be how I look. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, how you look is just one part of your body. It just happens to be the outside part, but it's actually not even the most important part. It's just one of the parts. Mm-hmm. But if we can be accepted fully in our bodies by our caregivers, I think we don't have to leave our experiences Mm. to try to belong. I don't think we have to disconnect from our body to stay safe relationally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's going to bring me now into Mm. what about those who now we're going to move into traumatic experiences where they're feeling that overwhelming you know, surge of energy that can feel really frightening where they have mm-hmm. that adrenaline, they want to jump out, you know, through the wall, through the window mm-hmm. and can't, they're stuck. Mm-hmm. What about that? Can we talk about how does that impact one's ability to start to feel like to start to basically become disembodied? Can you t- share with us a little bit about that? 
Well, it brings to mind the bimodal nature of the trauma response in that there are activation responses to trauma, but when the activation responses don't get us anywhere, it takes us into the deactivation responses, the dissociation, the hypoarousal, the shutdown and of vasovagal responses. And so I think what's important to recognize that our body is in very intuitive and very wise in terms terms of how our our system is making choices about what will keep us alive, what will keep us safe. And there is something about the activation response that is a lot. Like it it takes a lot of energy, it is scary, it comes because we're f- afraid and usually we can learn to be afraid of it itself. And our systems naturally know when being with that for too long in too much in an unsupported way, isn't going to change anything and intuitively knows how to shut down. So while I talk about disembodiment as a kind of fragmented way of being, and yes, that's true, I think spiritually, existentially, uh, psychologically, physiologically, I also have a deep appreciation for when our bodies do that as a means of getting away from what is otherwise Mm -hmm. overwhelming, because those states are truly really hard to be with. We're not Mm -hmm. meant to live in them. They're meant to Mm be you know, an arc, a waveform of something that emerges helps us change a situation or get away. And when, when it doesn't, when we're stuck, what do we have left to do except shut down and disconnect? You know, my own experience of trauma and a a PTSD diagnosis and the experience of, of navigating recovery was such that I, I under, you know, I understand what it is like both to know what is happening in my body and also to wish that it wasn't also to feel the terror and the horror of this overwhelming nervous system response and see that as proof, even if in moments or over periods of time, like that's proof that my body is bad, isn't it? Because if my body was good, it wouldn't hurt so much. It wouldn't be so scary. It wouldn't be having these panic attacks for no Mm -hmm. reason, you know, Mm -hmm. air quote, no reason. And it's been really helpful for me in my trauma recovery journey to be able to see the goodness of the activation as well as the goodness of the shutdown, right? To see the trustworthiness of the dissociation and to see the trustworthiness of the fight or flight response of the, you know, the, the action tendency that's latent in my muscles. And for me, the story that I often return to myself when those moments happen now. And again, I, you know, I've, I've done enough processing that I'm able to have this narrative at the same time as the response is happening, which isn't always the case when we're early on in our processing work, I can feel my heart racing and the panic emerging. And I can also say to my system, Oh, honey, you think we're back there. (laughs) You think we're back there and you think it's happening again. And I want you to know, sweetie, we're not. We're right here. And here's the proof. You know, I I'm right at my desk in my home where I live now. This is the year that it is. This is the season it is. This is what's happening in my life. We're not stuck back there. You're safe. We're here together. And I'm going to protect you. So beautiful, Hillary. Thank you. But it's like that, that allows me to be in relationship with the panic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't demean or shame or blame it Mm -hmm. and also holds its wisdom like that that response was exactly when I needed when I was in the trauma and because I couldn't get away it got locked in my body 
And my body on some level doesn't think that it's over because it didn't get to complete the thing it needed to complete. And so just being able to recognize like, oh, that is good. Mm. That is good. It's it's a little mismatched with the timing, right? I'll, I'll give my system that like, yeah, this is a little mismatched. That made a lot of sense in, you know, 2009. It made a lot of sense in, you know, Mm -hmm. 2015 and whatever. But I, I love being able to see that both can be true, that the activation can be horrifying to sense and it can be good and I can be good as it's all happening. And the same with dissociation, that numbness, like I don't have a body. I understand why it's happening and I can love it in a way because I don't think that it is bad. I think it is my system doing exactly what my system knows how to do when things are overwhelming. And the irony is that and we you know we know this from the social response model of trauma that when we have our experiences known and validated and and cared for and witnessed and seen mm-hmm. that it provides one of the experiences of relational safety yeah. which signals to our nervous system it's over so the irony is like as the, you know the trauma response is coming up when we meet it with compassion it is the proof that we're through it and the response oh. tends to settle oh so beautiful yeah. I'm shaking my head. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I mean, that is, that is the response that we needed back then. And mm-hmm. when you meet yourself, when you have that, the way you were describing it each time, it is that um, it's that completion, you're now doing it and providing that inner relationship. And it's just, mm-hmm. just really beautiful. Mm, and it's a process. Of course, of course. Yeah. Mm, yeah. You know, on that note, when I think about the process, I'm just grateful for the number of people in my life who could hold that truth for me mm. before I could for myself mm. and how useful it is to have people, even people we're not in close relationship with people who were kind of, we're just, you know, listening to their podcast or we're reading their book or whatever, like, okay, that's a possibility of what, what I need to hear. And I'm going to imagine that they're saying that to me in that moment. And then maybe when I do that enough, I can imagine me saying it to me. Mm. Like, I think we can borrow narratives from each other. And and actually I wouldn't say, I think I can, I think we can, I'd say that is actually how our inner narratives develop. When we think about our, our kind of our mental landscape, our inner thought life, it is usually the result of those early relational experiences that we've had. And when we have new relational experiences that are corrective, including ones that we were observing and borrowing from, I believe that our system wants wants to adopt something healthier, even mm-hmm. if it's hard. Our system wants to know how to love itself. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, some of the language around that can also be called disconfirming experiences, whether yes. that's with a friend or a therapist or, you know, a group. But just having that that experience of being like, unconditionally welcomed and accepted mm-hmm. uh is is so so healing mm-hmm. um yeah and on on repeat you know <laughs> exactly yeah really really beautiful yeah. and of course directing it towards ourself i know when people are at the beginning of their healing journey that's often like when you talk about having self-compassion it can feel like oh you know like no yeah. but in time, it can start to develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. Mm. We talked a little bit about 
um, you know, how we kind of start to leave our body and become disembodied and even how we can start to become mm-hmm. um, embodied. And can you talk more about that, how we can start to help our bodies to um, get comfortable being inside, for example, when we do feel a lot of sensation? Yeah. I think that um, there's something about realizing it could be as simple as being right here, right now, right? There is, I've got training in all sorts of different somatic Mm -hmm. modalities and all sorts of different kinds of trauma therapies. And the reality is that those can feel onerous and hard to access and maybe, you know, too, too skill-based, too, um, labor, laborious in a way, what I always like to let people know is that, you know, when you're uncomfortable in your chair and you shift your posture to be more comfortable, you're doing it. When you are thirsty and you go get a glass of water, you're doing it. You know, when you're tired and you put yourself to bed, you're doing it, right? There is, I think in the embodiment space, there's a lot of um, jargon and there's a lot of practices that feel like really expressive and have to do with unstructured movement. And I, those are regular practices in my, in my day to day that have, have saved my life. I'm sure of it. And also like when we're looking at the recovery journey, often where we start is exactly where we are and just making these tiny little tweaks in uh, trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga. They talk about this as effective action. The idea that like, Oh, if something feels off, I can do something about it or choice, right? If I, um, if I'm noticing what's happening inside of my system, I can respond. And when we do that, when we have an impulse in a bodily way, when we have a longing or a felt sense of a need and we take goal directed action towards meeting that need, there's a dopamine secretion that's, I think, connected to the learning process and the, the good feelings associated with building self-trust. So the research, I mean, Christine Caldwell's work has talked about this a little bit too, but there is something about noticing we have a need and meeting it on a small, almost invisible day-to-day level that builds the quality of self-trust as an embodied process. And it doesn't have to be fancy. There doesn't have to be anyone around. It doesn't have to look like processing your hardest trauma. It can simply be, I'm hungry, so I fed myself. Mm-hmm. I was full, so I stopped. No, what you're saying is 100% accurate. I remember working with someone and that is exact. She came from, yeah, where she wasn't able to feel anything growing up. She didn't, mm-hmm. she couldn't because it was, there was too much going on with them. Yeah. Anyway, so her process was that she just she never if she felt hungry or thirsty she wouldn't even notice it would be hours she had to go use the washroom she didn't even and that she was starting to get into contact with when she was thirsty and Mm. you know and that was exactly what you're saying just the beginning of self-care the beginning of meeting her own needs it was amazing Mm. yeah wow it's big. it's such a big deal, right? It it's is small, but it's not. These are Mm-mm. profound changes when our bodily realities have been ignored and denied, and we've learned to ignore and deny them as a tool for our relational survival. So I think I don't want to dismiss these interventions as being 
insignificant. They're profound. And I think that they are the the bedrock of our ability to feel like an adult, to feel safe in our bodies, to believe that we're worthy of care. Oh, absolutely. And that that's why when, when, when she started doing that, I remember feeling in my, I just felt very emotional because that was it. I was witnessing her for the first time taking care of herself. And it was just Mm. absolutely amazing. And also I remember at the same time, she was not used to expressing herself and she had wanted to express herself things that were bothering her in her relationship, but she just couldn't let it out. So I suggested she maybe write it down. So she wrote it down on a paper bag and handed it to her partner. Mm. And when he had no issue with it and he did what it said on the paper, she was blown away. But that little tiny step gave her the confidence to then take the next step, which was maybe to voice it. So, yeah. So you can't minimize any, anything. Um, Mm -hmm. They're all so important. Yeah. Yeah, Well said. Yeah. I mean, there's so many other things I'd like to say. I just said minimize. and, And I was thinking about how we, you know, part of also our healing journey and embodiment is learning not to minimize the physical sensations that we are feeling, like we were saying hungry, thirsty, but also maybe I'm tired. Maybe Mm. I don't want to go to this party. Um, Maybe I don't want to go. Maybe I want to say no. And, and, And starting to learn how not to bypass those impulses. Yes. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that there's something that comes, comes to mind whenever we're talking about paying attention and that is making a bit of space. Like it's really hard to notice the impulses when we're jam packed, when our attention is saturated with all the things we have to do and the places we have to go and the stimulus that we have around us, our devices, our social media, like just having moments, like maybe noticing is too hard, but maybe there's an opportunity for you to, to create a, just a little bit of space. And within that blank space, that's unscheduled, um, unsaturated, that then you might encounter a little bit of sensation, a little bit of noticing, a little bit of wanting, a little bit of feeling. And it might be those places that your journey to feel into yourself begins, mm. not by expecting that you'll notice and be attuned to any kind of sensation or emotion or impulse right away, but simply by leaving the space for them to, to appear. Mm. And I imagine that as being a way that we say to our bodily self, I want to hear you and I'm going to make space to listen to you. And when you're ready to talk, I'll listen mm. and I'll be here listening. And you take as long as you need to talk to me. I love that. Mm. And I, I just love the, uh, the compassion because when you were talking at the beginning about the, did you use the word malevolent? I think that we sort of have this feeling because it's giving us panic because it's feeling mm. that, that it, that it has a bad intention and the way you're talking is, is out of friendship and out of love and out of compassion. And there's a, there's a welcoming that our bodies may have never experienced before. And (laughs) I think have always yearned to feel that. Yes. I am so with you. I think that's what we yearn for on a deep Mm, level. Yeah. Mm. Is there anything else you want to bring to this conversation? I mean, not without taking a whole other hour. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's so much that we could say, but I feel I like this is a, a lovely okay. place to leave it. Like we've talked okay. about the problems mm. and some mm. strategies and mm. 
yeah, I'm, I'm just grateful to have shared little tidbits with your community and I feel fine leaving here. I mean, this is a great place to say, you know, if you want to read more, you can check mm-hmm. out the book. Yes. Yes. And I, I also have, I just, I love audio books. So I like listening to it on audio. Mm-hmm. If, if you guys like that, I, it's really, really good. And um, I appreciate you. I thank you for the work that you're doing and that you're putting mm-hmm. out there. It's making a huge difference. Thank you for being with us today. I'm so grateful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for each of you for listening, for making space for this to hear my voice. And I hope that you get to make space to hear your own voice, your bodily voice too.